to Acts chapter 17. We'll be reading verse 16 through the end of the chapter. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he is, was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore that what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every, every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine, divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, and among them also were Dionysius, and the Aragopite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Allow me to pray. 
and then we will look closely at this. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, your word, its truth, and its power. Your spirit teaches us always of your light and truth, and by Paul's example, we hope to learn a few things this morning that will encourage our faith and instruct us to live more fully for Jesus. Let us see his example. Let us hope in him. Amen. I had to be out of town for a couple of days this week, so this morning's note, I borrowed some of the points from Sinclair Ferguson. I've not taken everything from him, but his basic outlines kind of helped me save a little bit of time. Uh, and I wanted to put that out up front because some of you who are familiar with the big controversy in the Southern Baptists about plagiarism, I give full credit to Dr. Ferguson. Um, but some of this work is also mine. As you saw last week, Acts 17, 10 through 15, the Apostle Paul had been in Berea. And the Bereans were very faithful people who had, even though this was the esteemed prophet, the esteemed apostle, Paul, who had been faithful and bold and courageous in his witness and his testimony, his teaching, these Bereans were more noble in that they studied the word of God to what he's teaching us true? But we also saw last week when the Jews from Thessalonica, Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they were too, they were upset. They sent crowds there to agitate and stir up things against Paul. And the Bereans kind of ran interference and took Paul down to the coast put him on a boat, and send him away to Athens safely. And for a moment or two, I would like to kind of set the stage. We all know of the history of Athens. We know it was a great ancient city, but there's the terms here in the text I would like to kind of open up a little bit. Some of you might know what they are, but those of you don't, it would be helpful to know what they're talking about. Athens was a city of major importance. It was an ancient city. It's ancient now. It was ancient then. It had been in existence for nearly 500 years by the time Paul arrived on the scene. The city itself, though widespread, was kind of dominated by what was known as the Acropolis. The Temple of Athena was up on top, and it was said that her statue could, the glint on the spear of her statue could see, be seen for 40 miles. The temples on top of that building were, and I don't mean this irreverently, they were magnificent. They were 
beautiful. And it was very imposing. Down beneath that, around as the city surrounded this Acropolis, there was a place, one particular place of the city called the Agora. It was the marketplace. Craftsmen carved images, carved statues. Uh, people made all kinds of things to sell in that marketplace. It was also a big outdoor colonnaded columns built up and kept, had a stone covering for about two or three hundred yards. An outdoor mall. Of course, today we would call it a flea market or a farmer's market. But this is where people went to shop. This is where people went to be social. This is where people went to meet one another. It was outdoors. Have you ever heard the term, uh, term agoraphobia? It's borrowed from this fear of the outdoors. This was an outdoor mall. The Areopagus, the Areopagus, where these philosophers wanted to take Paul, was an elevated hill northwest of the Acropolis. It wasn't as high as the Acropolis, but it was also an ancient place that had been set up in years past and used, was used as kind of a place of judgment. But in Paul's day, it was used as a place of philosophical debate. It was no longer judgment. It is understood that Socrates was tried on top of the Areopagus. He was condemned to death there. But as I understand it, there were no more court cases held there. It was just a place to display tributes to their gods. We'll see that in a moment. The text talks about the philosophers who had heard Paul preaching in the Agora, the marketplace. Can you imagine street preaching in an ancient city to people who had never heard about Jesus Christ? And these philosophers came by, stopped by Starbucks, got there double lattes and their croissants and they heard this Jew shouting a message and stopped to listen. Two different points of view, two different types of philosophers were mentioned here. The Epicureans, you may have heard of those, some of you may have studied them in school or in university. I'm going to oversimplify this for the sake of time as we continue to set the stage here. Epicurus, one who we believe founded the Epicurean philosophy, lived between 340 and 270 BC. So about 350 years prior to this time, this Epicurean philosophy began. Their goal was to teach people to kind of relax and enjoy life without worrying so much. Some people believe the Epicureans did not believe in God. It's not that they did not believe in God. It's that 
They thought that the gods that the Greeks believed in back then were so distant, so far removed, they didn't care about humans. So they said, why not just live our lives without guilt? There's not going to be any consequence to what we do. Let's live stress-free. With the removal of the fear of gods came two advantages for the Epicureans. No judgment after death, so death should not be feared. No judgment during life, so live as you please. And it wasn't that they were disciplined or lazy or anything. They just believed that you should enjoy life, set up life around where everything is provided for. You have food, you have shelter, be comfortable, and enjoy it. Doesn't sound so bad, but if that becomes your idol, if that becomes your only way of living, only, only source of happiness, then you have eternity to fear. On the other hand, there was the Stoics, whom Luke also mentions. Stoicism was first taught by Zeno about 400 years earlier. And he did his teaching, lecturing, to discipleship in the Agora in Athens. They combined three disciplines. The philosophical base of Stoicism is physics. They recognize that this world, this natural law, whom many modern people would call it, has a logic, has reason. There are cause and effect consequences to everything in life. They believe that it was kind of a form of pantheism. They believed that God was everything and not separate from anything. The alignment of one's perception with this world is a journey. And someone who complete, was completely immature in the ways or understanding of Stoicism would allow their passions to rule their life. They would make unreasonable decisions in response to things that happened to them, and that should not be. You should understand that there are consequences to everything that happens to you. There are consequences to everything that you respond and in how you respond. To kind of simplify this a little bit, if you remember the old TV series or even the new modern films about it, Star Trek, Mr. Spock, classic example of a Stoic. Live by logic. Now that's a bit of an oversimplification, but it helps us understand. You have the Epicureans who, are, who, who would live to enjoy life, and the Stoics said, if you, if you aren't careful, you're going to get yourself in trouble by living to enjoy life. We could almost see that kind of understanding today. We see people who live haphazardly, they don't care what happens to them, and others say, live by law, live by the rules. It's the same kind of an idea.
And I don't mean to be insulting or flippant, but if you look at Christianity, there is a little bit of the Epicurean and the charismatic person, the name it and claim it kind of attitude about Christianity, and the good old staunch Reformed Presbyterian. One's an Epicurean, one's a Stoic. So the stage is set. Acts 17, verse 16, while Paul was waiting, Silas and Timothy were back in Berea, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Have you ever been provoked by the Holy Spirit? I know that if you have teenagers, you've probably been provoked, not necessarily by the Holy Spirit. And I know as a teenager, I remember my father provoking me a few times, but that wasn't the Holy Spirit. But the Apostle Paul had seen that this city was full of idols. There were many. And it troubled him. Are we ever provoked over the idolatry of this world? We understand that it's there, but does it really bother us? Does it really motivate us to do anything about it, to proclaim God's glory, to proclaim his gospel? Or are we at the place where if that's the way they want to live, just let them go? They want to be Epicureans, we'll let them be Epicureans. Holy Spirit, Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And this word babbler is kind of interesting. It literally means it's talking about a bird. It's a derogatory, derogatory statement. It is an insult. This seed picker, this bird that will move from one plant to another, is just eating seeds. They don't understand what he's talking about. This babbler, what does he wish to say? These philosophers listened to him and were curious. They said he seemed to be preaching... He, be, they, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So here they were at the Areopagus. That's what the Greeks called it, by the way. 
Modern Christians call it, well, the Romans in ancient times called it Mars Hill. That's what a lot of ministries in Christianity today are started. You might remember a church years ago up in the northwest of our country called Mars Hill. This kind of gives a connotation that this is where Paul presented the gospel in such a way that people believed, and so they are borrowing from that reputation. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, excuse me, made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he had nothing, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to us gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Remember, there were many gods in ancient Greece. And just to be sure, they had erected an idol to an unknown god. I remember years ago, a couple of trips to India, I realized there. The Indian Hindu has thousands of gods. Thousands of gods. They worship everything. And it was kind of surprising to see. I remember the second year I went in, there was a team of evangelists there who had never been to India. They were real excited to go, and they wanted to share the gospel, so they, they bought tracts, and they started handing out tracts, and they started rejoicing and celebrating because everybody they talked to came to Jesus. But the missionary we were there ministering with got a little bit frustrated because he understood what was going on. They weren't necessarily getting converted to Christ. They were in the attitude of, what's one more God? I might as well be safe. I'll say your prayer with you. I'll read your, I'll listen to your presentation. It doesn't make any difference to me. May I have a rupee? That's pretty much what was going on in ancient Greece. Let's just be safe. If, if, if there are gods, what's one more? We don't know them all. 
what's one more God? But the the Apostle Paul tells us, this unknown God I proclaim to you, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. What the Apostle Paul was trying to tell them, we are surrounded by God's revelation. He has made this world. He has created everything in it. He has created us. His general revelation, that's what we call this creation, is evidence of his handiwork. And it is everywhere. But so many people do not wish to see it. Romans 1.20, very familiar passage. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that, that we are without excuse. You want to look at this world? You want to look at the stars above us? You want to look at the sun and the moon? You want to look at this creation? and its wonder, and its detail, to deny that there is no design that all came about chance, you're a fool. We are surrounded by God's revelation. And that was what the Apostle Paul was reminding them then. This unknown God I proclaim to you He also says that we are overrun or invaded by his revelation. Verse 28, the Apostle Paul quotes a great philosopher or a great poet. In him we live and move and have our being. He is trying to relate to them and remind them that even within his providential care, he has given words to their own prophets that point to him. In him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is different. God is outside of creation, therefore he has made us different. And yet, we and all of his creation reflects his image and his glory. But in the fallen state of man, the world wants to deny that and rebel against him. He is near to us all. We see the proof. Romans 
The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, listen carefully, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In man's sin, he will deny the existence of God. He will deny the truth that God has given. We are surrounded by God's revelation. We are overrun or invaded by the revelation. It is everywhere. Most have rejected this revelation. And the Apostle Paul comes to this altar of the unknown God. And they admitted that they do not know him. Paul boldly proclaimed that this this God was the only God, the only true God. People in this world still have idols. The late Jack Miller said, the human heart is an idol factory. The only reason we don't recognize things as idols is because they aren't wood or gold or silver or stone. They are things that we make more important in our life than anything else. Material things, material activities. They're not necessarily anything of spirit with a spiritual aspect. They are things that keep us occupied in this world. They keep, keep us preoccupied without acknowledging Him. They give us some satisfaction temporarily, but they will never be enough to give us eternal gratification or eternal liberty. Most have rejected the revelation of God. Even today in this modern world, most have rejected this world because their idols predominate their life. Some are living as Epicureans, just bathing the pleasures of this world. Some are living as Stoics. Live by the rules and everything will be okay. We find that in Christianity. Live by the law. And you will be okay. But living by that law does not gain us righteousness in Christ. Our righteousness is found in Christ. Living by the law does not gain any of that righteousness. We cannot be a measure of our own righteousness. We must trust in his righteousness Fourth point here. The Apostle Paul tells them we will be judged by this revelation. In verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this man he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And of course he is talking about Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul said, The Lord has not overlooked the sins and offenses of man. He's not looking, looked, overlooked that at all. He does care. He is nearby. He has made all things. But there is now revealed to man a king, a redeemer, a judge who has been raised from the dead. He has been appointed to judge all things, to make all things new, and to take care of those who reject this truth, this revelation, this righteousness, and to redeem and wash and cleanse those who repent and turn to him. Scripture says, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Those are ridiculous. But others said, we will hear you again about this. To the Athenians, Paul said, God hasn't forgotten about your sin or your guilt. He's just been postponing justice. He's been postponing judgment. There is a way to the one true God, and that is through Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. The Apostle Paul in verse 16 was provoked at the idols around him. I, I believe that was Holy Spirit convicting. Bothering him so much he had to say something. He could not hold back and he began preaching and preaching and preaching. He went to the synagogues and taught and preached there. He went to the marketplace and taught and preached publicly. Just started preaching to anyone who would listen to him. And then he got an audience of philosophers and was able to share the gospel. You and I need to be convinced of the truth of the word of God. Are you? Are you convinced that God's word is true? Live like it. Be unashamed of the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the living bread. I am the, li the living water. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. Be unashamed of the exclusivity of Christ. Proclaim his message. Do it boldly. Be convinced. Be convinced of the vanity of all human philosophy. Don't be swayed by those who might appear to be reasonable and yet deny the word of God.
all of their all of their teaching, all of their wisdom, as the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth, the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. But man's wisdom is foolish to God. Be convinced of the vanity of all human philosophy. Understand clearly the situation of the unbeliever. Do you care not that these people are lost and dying and going to hell? Are you willing to reach out and share the gospel? You're going to get some pushback. You're going to get some resistance. Expect it. Understand clearly the situation of the unbeliever. The unbeliever cannot escape the revelation. God has been revealed in creation. He has been revealed through his word. They will be held accountable for their unbelief. They will never be able to escape the consequences of unbelief. This message is entitled, Turning the Other Cheek. And we are seeing that maybe not so clear in this morning's passage. I picked up on this, on the verse where they are talking about him being a babbler. They were trying to insult him. They didn't think much of what he was saying. Some of it was a little bit confusing. But the Apostle Paul kept preaching. He just turned the other cheek and kept giving them the gospel. Like he did in Antioch of Pisidia. He preached there and was expelled. In Iconium, he preached there. They attempted to stone him. In Lystra, he preached there and he was stoned and left dead. In Philippi, he preached there and was beaten and jailed. In Thessalonica, his preaching caused a riot. In Berea, he was run out of town. Lord Jesus, it was not that he was being a coward running from the resistance from the persecution, our Lord Jesus told his disciples that when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. His, the Lord's teaching of turning the other cheek, there is a place in it specifically for personal relationships when people insult you or hurt you. Be a little bit like the Stoic, except base it on Scripture. Be gracious enough, patient enough with someone else's anger, someone else's rejection, 
and allow them to do it again if needed. Do not strike back. But also in your presentation of the gospel, as did Paul. They kept persecuting, they kept resisting, he kept coming. Showing God's grace, God's truth, persistently, faithfully. Again, I remind you what the Lord said. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. We need to be able to apply that to our gospel message. When people reject us, keep on sharing the gospel. Keep on praying for them. Keep on loving them. That's why you need courage to be a Christian. That's where you need courage to be faithful to the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson shared a story of someone in, this was years ago, some young lady who was involved in the ministry where he was, and you remember Alice Cooper? Some of you remember Alice Cooper? This man this man's rock and roll presentations were described as violent. He would very often depict slaughter, massacre on stage while his rock and roll was played. And someone found out that this young lady who was involved in, in Sinclair Ferguson's ministry had gone to an Alice Cooper concert and crashed the after party. And a few people were quite alarmed until they found out why. She had gone up to the door where this after party was after their concert, and she came up to the bouncer, her and a friend of hers, and said, we would like to go in. And the bouncer said, well, what do you, who are you? Why are you here? We want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with Alice Cooper. And the bouncer let her in. I don't know if that was, had anything to do with it, but today you can find some Bible conferences where Alice Cooper is speaking. He's recognized who Christ is. Now, would someone be bold enough or courageous enough to go to someone to an after party of a Marilyn Manson concert? Or a Katy Perry concert? You know, it's quite interesting and almost heartbreaking to see that all three of these people, Alice Cooper, Marilyn Manson, and Katy Perry, are all children of preachers. They've heard the gospel before. But apparently, 
had not been convinced of it. Alice Cooper, I believe, finally has. Are we courageous enough to go to boldly to people who might be so arrogantly rejecting Christ that they're living full bore, full volume, full scope of an Epicurean rebellion? Are we bold enough to share the gospel with them? You might think yourself of a nobody. But the Lord Jesus Christ is your eternal Lord and Savior, and he is everything. If you're not bold enough to go to someone who is famous, are you bold enough to go to your next-door neighbor? Or the person you work with? Be convinced of the truth of the Word of God. Do not be ashamed of the exclusivity that Christ claims. Be convinced of the vanity of human philosophy. That philosophy will get man nowhere. Understand clearly the situation of the unbeliever. They are lost and going to hell unless they receive Christ. Be willing to share. Be willing to share that truth and that life with them courageously. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and its truth and its power. Convict us all, Father, as we serve you. As we share your word and its truth, help us, Lord, to be faithful to you. It is for your son's glory we pray. Amen.